Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Kelly Harris DeBerry about her collection, Freedom Knows My Name. Kelly Harris DeBerry received her MFA in creative writing from Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has received fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center and Cobb Conum. Some of her publishing credits include 400 Years, The Story of Black People and Poems Written from Love, 1619 to 2019. Words, Beats, and Life, The Global Journal of Hip-Hop, Angels in the Wilderness, Young and Black in New Orleans, and Beyond, Torch Literary Magazine, the National Park Service Centennial Commemoration Publication with Sonia Sanchez, Yale University's Cottage Journal, Southern Review, Say It Loud, Poems for James Brown, and many more. Her podcast episode for About Place Journal called Congo Square, Sustaining the Sacred Post-Katrina, highlights her talents as a producer and researcher. Kelly is a former guest poetry editor for Bayou Magazine at the University of New Orleans. She serves her literary community as the New Orleans Poet and Writer's Literary Coordinator and on various community boards. Kelly is a cultural leader with Business Savvy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to start at the beginning. We've known each other for quite a long time, but... I think that our connection kind of started back at Kent State University via Harambe, which mm-hmm. is the poetry group there, um, and eventually through Uhuru Magazine um, prior to both of our graduations. But even though I've known you for so long, I don't think that I've ever asked you how you actually came to poetry. So can you share a little bit with the listeners about how you came to be a writer? Sure. Uh, again, thank you for having me. I I often tell people that I don't know if poetry came, if I came to poetry or rather it came to me. Um, I, I grew up not having a lot of books around the house, but I did grow up around a lot of storytelling. My mother was a hairdresser and my father was a preacher. And so I was always around stories. And so I think that was the, the, catalyst for my interest in writing and in reading. Uh, My parents often, and they were always, although at the particular time that I was growing up, I would say until about high school, neither of my parents had college degrees. And eventually they both went back and and got their degrees, but they didn't know how to, um, they didn't have like a, a, a certain pathway or a certain canon of books or writers that they introduced me to, but they always made me read and they always made me recite poetry, whether it was in the church, whether it was on the porch, all of those things. So I think that was the catalyst for me being a, wanting to be a poet. And then in high school, ironically, there was a poetry, um, assembly for National Poetry Month. 
And the poet that came, they asked me if I wanted to introduce the speaker. The speaker was Mutabu Okanta, whom, as you know, eventually became my teacher in college. And so that he was the first person that I knew of, like that I could see and touch that was a poet. But I was always reading things and I loved the library as well. So I was always gobbling up books, but there weren't ferocious readers in my house. Unlike some people who, who had that growing up, that wasn't my, my journey. So once you kind of gotten um, into your kind of own groove with books that you liked and writers that you liked, were there any particular writers who helped guide you in your work or like Professor Okanta, like people who kind of like recognized your, your skill set and kind of helped you develop those? <laughs> you know, I don't want to make this the Kent State show, but um, what really was, I just thought of myself as writing poetry. I didn't think of it as a big deal. I didn't think of it as life changing. I just wrote poetry and I had notebooks and notebooks of poetry probably um, since middle school. Um, and then at Kent State, I won a pageant contest, a pageantry contest. And um, I kind of got hoodwinked into being in the show in the first place. Um, I was told that a contestant had dropped out and they needed another um, another female contestant. And I was like, I don't have a talent. The only thing I do is write poetry. And they were like, well, do that. You know, and I was like, I don't know. Nobody wants to hear poetry. That, you know, poetry is not going to win anything. So I never walked into the pageant expecting to win. In fact, once I had did everything that I was required to do for the show, I put on my regular clothes and was, was trying to get back to my dorm room. And then they called my name as the winner. And that was my real first um if you will, big publishing moment, big public publishing moment that I won uh, a pageant as a poet. (laughs) So that started making me think differently about um, the work that I, the the poems that I was writing and that that showed me that it was a real connection, if that makes sense. And so then from there, I just, I, I was just, um, my father says that I just went poetry crazy. I was doing poetry any and everywhere that I could. And so those were some good old days. And I think at that particular time, I was like, eight, I was barely 18 years old. So from there, I imagine that's how you got involved with Harambe and, and all the work that you did on campus during the time that I originally met you. Mm-hmm. So obviously poetry was a big uh, especially performance poetry, open mics and things of that nature became like a thing that you became known for, not only on campus, but also in Northeast Ohio and beyond. So how was that importance of open mics and spoken word kind of like a catalyst for your creative life? Did you find that to be a place that you were more comfortable than actually on the written page? Or was there like an equal balance there? Uh, I didn't know what to feel. I was just doing um, I, when I look back on those days, I felt like I was the most free because I wasn't thinking about success or publishing. I wasn't thinking about if people would like it or not. I was just doing my passion, which was poetry. Um, 
and then eventually, I think later, I began to think more, I shouldn't say seriously about poetry because I was always serious about it. I I think college helped me understand that there was a larger world of writing. Um, and I didn't know how I fit into that, but I knew that I wanted to do that. Um, the spoken word was what was at that time. And um, it was just, uh, it was what I was doing. I, I didn't think of myself as a spoken word artist. I never, and I still don't. I just think of myself as a poet. Um, but I know that people make distinctions. But for me, it was always just my natural way of being, if that makes sense. So I was thinking that distinction that you just brought up is very clear that especially when you're going from being what people would consider like a spoken word poet or open mic poet and you go into an MFA program um, that they sometimes have this like idea that somehow what you've done in the past leading up to that moment, maybe not as be as serious. Um, And I think that that's kind of like a, a bridge that needs to be held in those kind of those kind of circles. So did you find like going from just like the passionate place of writing and, and, and seeing yourself as a poet and not as a particular type of poet was like an advantage when you got into like an MFA space or did you find any disadvantage to that at all? I, I felt I was at a disadvantage as a poet. Um, and it was a very lonely place at that time. I was the only black person in my, in the poetry program. In fact, there were four black folks and we all were in a different genre. So (laughs) we were um, together, but also very isolated. Like there was one fiction, one children's lit, myself, and I think um, nonfiction. So um, I had, I, I think I came to the MFA program with a strong ear and that was not celebrated, uh, in the MFA program, I, I, I was I'm just writing about this as we're we're talking about this. Um, before I I got on this interview with you, I was writing about I, I think there's some damage that happens often to Black writers in uh, in MFA programs where our natural instincts sometimes are educated out of us. And so, um, just for example, I remember after I graduated from my MFA program, I went back home um, and I had a featured reading in Columbus and Scott Woods, many of folks know who Scott Woods is in Columbus. I went there, I read all these poems that were MFA poems that I had gotten good grades on. They were forms and all those sorts of things. And after the reading, he said, we didn't bring you here to be them or something else. We brought you here to be the Kelly that we know and love you to be, to give us, you know, all of the performance, all the the stuff that you do. And it was really jarring for me. And it really sent me into a down spiral for a while because I had spent two years trying to be a writer only to come home and come back into community and couldn't connect with community and writers the same way that I had before I left because I had been, and I'm putting in air quotes, educated or MFA educated. And so that was a real struggle for me. 
And I felt like I was at a place where I was going to have to decide what kind of audience I wanted. And I, it was important to me that I stay connected to community because I believe that like art is from the ground up, not top down. Right. So everything that researchers and scholars are writing about first comes from the streets. It comes from, you know, people being naturally innovative, right, out of circumstance or out of, you know, um, their own individual cultures and things of that nature. For example, in New Orleans, people, the people that do the culture are not the ones that often write about the culture. Right. So you have the people creating the culture, the second lines, the Mardi Gras Indians, all those things. But then the academy or the scholars write about it. Right. And so um, I didn't want to be one of those people who was kind of a reporter of culture, a reporter, a poet reporter. I wanted to be um, and stay connected to the ground and to culture and to people and to things. And so that's why uh, the book has these kind of, um, some may say simple themes, but for me, it's about returning to what I feel is my most authentic self. And I, I say this all the time that I wanted to write a book that I could bring home to my mother. Many a time during my MFA program and afterwards, I would, she would come and she would sit in the audience and she would listen and she would come to support me. And she would often say, I don't understand what anybody else was talking about, you know? (laughs) Um, And it was important to me that I carve a space for the people who are not in the academic spaces. I feel like, you know, I read too much to other writers. I'm interested in reading and and performing for the janitor, the school cafeteria woman, you know, all of these different types of people that I really feel are at the intersections of culture um, and are the real poetry makers, right? And so um, I do feel that I learned to be a better editor, a better reader um, in my MFA program, but it didn't really teach me how to poet. I came with that. Um, does that make sense? sense? It does. I'm like so glad you said that because, um, we went to similar MFA programs, like both low res programs. And I was that, that particular entry, the only black poet, and there was like a black fiction writer. So we weren't in the same kind of cohort. And it was the same idea when I came home. It was kind of like, what happened to the soul of what you were writing? And I was like, but I went and got this degree, so therefore I'm a better poet. But that really wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, so kind of branching off from the idea of, of having the ear when you went into that MFA program, mm-hmm. um, for anyone who hasn't read your book, there's an audio component to the book. Um, so I wanted to know if you could speak a little bit of how that audio p- component came to be. Um, how the process of putting it together happened and why it was important for you to include it along with the actual print copy of the book? Well, I wanted to create, well, at the heart of me is I'm trying to figure out how to always be innovative. I want to not do the same thing over and over what everybody else is doing. That's just um, <laughs> part of my personality um, that I think, you know, feeds and fuels my poetry. But I, I was trying to think, I was thinking to myself over and over, how can I do something unique with this book? 
what what can I do? I, and I just, I would just walk around the house asking myself that question. I didn't know what it was going to be, what it was going to look like. I just knew that I had to do something different. And then I thought back to the days where books had CDs in the back. And, um, and I was like, I wonder if there's a way that, like, how can I do that in a 2020 version, right? And so I began to um, research and wonder and dream big. And um, I came up with, you know, and I'm sure it's been done in some other capacities, but I'm, I'm being told that this is like one of, is that the front of the class for innovative books that, you know, to have a, an audio component basically embedded into the book is something that the future, I think you're going to see more of that in the future, but I'm doing it right now. So, um, and then so many people said, we'd just love to hear you. So many people said, can you do a live concert? Can you do, you know, they wanted the audio components, but I also wanted, I felt like if I only did audio, people would not respect me as a writer. They would just say that I was a performer. And so I wanted to be able to be in both worlds as best that I could be. Um, you know, I just see myself as a writer and I do whatever the poems are required to do. I try to answer the call of the poem, you know, but I know that people for whatever purposes put things into categories. And so, um, but yeah, that, that was kind of the impetus of it. I have found that, uh, it's been interesting. People have said, one person told me they were, they drive, they were driving, listening to the book. They literally had the book on the the front seat with them and they were listening to the book, um, through their phone. Uh, someone else told me they were listening to it while they were cutting grass. And so like (laughs) things that I could not have imagined that the book would do, it is being done. Um, and so that's exciting for me and that's innovative. And I, I don't want to just be a writer. I want to be an innovator. That's really, really important to me that, even if I get the writing wrong, I want people to say that she took some risk, that she was like, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to hear a poem that is, you know, like in a race announcer's voice. And and that's what I pride myself in doing. If you come to any readings that I do, you, I hope that the, someone walks away feeling like, wow, I didn't expect that. I didn't, I didn't think a poem could do that. And so, um, Audio, I mean, sound is a part of who I am as a as a poet. I can't get away from it. I try to get away from it. I try to behave <laughs> as a poet and do all the um, the proper things, but it just was in me um, to do uh, the sound and some of the more performance things as well. So it's been good. I, I think I didn't know we were going to be in a pandemic when. Um, this when the book was coming out, but I have found that it has helped spur the sales of the book because people really feel like they're getting a poetry reading and a book at the same time. So I would also say the other thing with technology is that my older readers, they'll contact me and say, how do I listen to it? My younger readers are like, yeah, I love this. This is you know, the coolest thing. And, and they, they listen more. And then I have the option to just buy the audio album. And I, 
kind of forgot that I had that option in my website on my website and that's been selling good as well. So, um, I think that, you know, um, there's a, a reason why audiobooks sell and why you have voiceovers and all those things is because the way that things sound also matters to us. And I, and I'm going on, but I, I want to make this point also about something really changed in me once I had a baby and I was able to see language start from the beginning. And when, once you see somebody that cannot talk and then they go into, you know, full sentences and you, and I saw that language does not come from writing. It comes from doing. It's why we have um, finger play, nursery rhymes, all of those things. And somehow we suddenly believe that writing can be, um, it's this very behaved uh, process where you just sit down and do it. Whereas sometimes I walk around the house and I'm like trying to clap out a poem. I'm trying to like get to a rhythm. And it's the same way that babies and children learn to talk and to write. And so I'm trying to borrow some of that back in my work because you are, I think, through sound, through movement, um, we are, you're being, your whole self is being engaged in language. And there's a difference between language and literature. Some people have called me a language poet. I, you know, I don't know. Um, but I try to use all of the tools that I've learned in my MFA and the life tools that I have learned. And I try to incorporate all of that into my work. I think what you're saying also kind of harkens back to what you said a little bit ago about the idea of not wanting to be reading to other writers all the time and being like in conversation with other writers all the time. I think having that audio component gives people a greater entry into the work as well. So not only are you doing like that through your actual written work, but the audio component as well, it gives people an entryway into it. So I, I say 100% continue on with it. <laughs> Um, so I kind of want to move into a couple of questions about specific um, poems and themes within the book. So as I was reading the book, um, I read a lot of it out loud, to be 100% honest. Um, I jotted down ideas and questions and I kept like a running list of words that seemed to be, for me at least, overarching themes in the work. And I found that there were anchors of home and culture, self-discovery, definition, and so I wanted to look at some individual pieces to kind of see um, where your kind of like thought process um, started with those things. So the first poem is, um, who will you say you are? And there's a line that reads, whose life is on the VIP list? And especially in this kind of current climate that we've been living in now and for the last four years, um, I wanted to know what value a life is in your eyes outside of what we're told matters, like what makes a life, what what kind of like legacy would you like to leave behind? Uh, I don't know. That's such a hard, that's such a heavy question. Um, you know, your legacy really doesn't start until you die. You know, I know that people um, call, you know, we, we call people legends and things of that nature, but you know, what you leave behind and what you, contribute to the world 
and the way that you love inside of the world is, is really your legacy. Um, for me, this book is about documenting myself. I'm not trying to win awards or at least not saying that I'm writing to win something or to position myself in, you know, in some other process. I'm just really trying to write the truth. I think we have enough successful writers and enough successful people. And maybe we don't have enough. Maybe we can never have enough. But we need more truth tellers. We need more people to tell it like it is, you know. Um, and I think oftentimes the MFA programs, we think we have to write riddles. We have to trick people or trick the reader. And um, we seem to turn our nose up at plain talk. Um, and so I'm hoping that my legacy is that, and particularly, you know, the love that I have for Black folks is evident. Um, the love that I have for culture is evident. And that um, I chose to do uh, my art the way that I wanted to do it, whether that was costly or risky. I I stuck to my integrity and to and and I and I stayed authentic authentic. Um, but who you say you are is the question for all of us right now in in, in the world. Who we say we are, um, whether it's Republican, Democrat, uh, you know, liberal, all those things, all these things that we say we are. Um, it's one thing to say who you are. It's another thing for who you are to impact other people. And that's what that poem is about. So one of the other things that I kind of, I latched on to um, was this idea of girlhood and womanhood and then making a definition and a, a, a feeling based on your own terms throughout the book. For, again, from my, from my own interpretation. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at poems like It's a Girl, um, where there's a line that reads, they would have made you an asterisk, put me to work on my back again just to see a boy win. And in the piece, Miss Edna, the line, my sweetness was trouble. So it seems that girlhood and by extension womanhood is of so little value, even though womanhood is birthing everything. And I wanted to ask you, how do you approach defining womanhood in your work and, and cataloging it and honoring it? And do you have any examples that kind of shaped that idea for you? Um, in another interview, someone was asking me about my feminist themes in my work. And it's, I guess I never thought about it. And I never sat down and said, I'm writing feminist poems. I just wrote what I thought was the truth and and what what my experiences were and are in life and um trying to write and gather the 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 experience of many women and girls that I know. Um and so I'm not sure if um if all of those themes I guess they're all connected. They're all connect like I think it's almost impossible to be a, and particularly a black woman writer and not write about women because our success and survival is so interconnected, if that makes sense. Um, I, I think I answered your question. I'm it not does. sure. Can you repeat um, the last, sure. part of it? last part of it? Oh, I was just asking, were there any kind of like examples that um, kind of inspired you into 
cataloging and honoring this idea of womanhood and, and self-definition, like any particular women in your life or um, yeah. okay. things sure. that you read? <laughs> sure. Um, thanks um, for that clarity. My mom, my daughter, um, Sonia Sanchez for me is, is like a North Star for me. She really embodies kind of woman warrior-ness to me. Lucille Clifton, um, Wanda Coleman, you know, I could go on and on. Um, but those are some of the women that I think about. I should say, originally, the book was called Shame on Her. And it was all about the shame put on and experienced and held by girls and women. Um, but I felt that it was so heavy and it, there was like no, not that it needed a resolve, but I just felt like it didn't, um, there was no way out. And I didn't want to leave the readers with that. And so I decided just one morning woke up and just went another direction. Um, and some of the original poems are in there. Some of them are not. One of the poems in particular that is not in this book um, that I decided to pull out was a poem for Ray Nagin, the former New Orleans mayor, uh, Ray Nagin's wife. And I had this whole series of poems about women who are married to public men and how they stand by their men and, and the 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 burden, I think, the unseen burden that women face. And I thought I thought it was a good poem. Um, it was a more traditional poem with form, but I felt it wasn't time to put that. Like, I, I thought about her, and I just, I don't even know her, but I thought, hmm, maybe I should wait a little while longer um, to give that to the world. Like, I just, you know... Um, I don't know why it just suddenly I just rethought it and pulled that poem. Uh, there was another poem about going with a friend um, for an abortion. And um, I decided I had permission from her to write that, to put that poem in. But then I decided um, that was a poem for us. And I, I pulled it out of the book. So, but I feel that this version of the book is, um, or Frida Knows My Name, allowed me to dream about both individual and collective freedom. And um, the first, or Shame on Her, that manuscript did not do that as much. And um, it just felt like climbing a mountain and um, and I didn't want to leave the reader that way, so so. And that kind of like brings me to this poem that kind of like it struck me like I wish you could see my book. There's all kind of sticky notes and underlines and margin notes. And um, in the poem "Grown Women Conversations," there's a line that reads, "All the women, a long braid of beauty, all their hands trimming dead ends." And I read that and I was like, okay. I I felt like my takeaway from the book as a whole was like this idea of like, this is what life has been in all these iterations and this, this, this braid of experiences and traumas and joys and triumphs. And now we're going to trim the dead away and this is what we're left with. Um, and so I wonder if, um, 
the readers who are Black women reading this book, was this something that you wanted for them specifically, or was this a book to more catalog their experiences for a wider audience? Uh, I think that's the reader's choice. You know, um, it's just my job to gather the the poems and the stories. So um, if other women see themselves in these poems, that's great. And I hope that they do. Um, but what, as, as Langston Hughes said, you know, um, if they do, they do. If they don't, they don't, you know, in his essay about, you know, the Negro and the racial mountain. Um, but yeah, I, it just really, that poem really just took me back to women, um, that I heard growing up. I remember just hearing the struggles of women and like not really understanding what it was about, but just feeling like, um, like I remember my aunt telling me the story on my wedding day that, um, she was getting her hair done by my mom and it was a couple of other women in the shop and and they were talking about the struggles they were having with their husbands and so forth. And I think I may have been seven or eight and I stood in the middle of the floor, according to her, and said, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to be taking care of no man. He's going to take care of me. And, you know, I went on and on about what I wasn't going to do and what I wasn't going to take from a man. And, um, my aunt said at the time, she thought I was just being fast, but she says, in retrospect, I was like speaking life over myself. And so um, to see me like walking down the aisle, like it took her back to that moment. And so um, that's part of what I was thinking about her when when um, I wrote that poem. So I guess that brings us to the state of Ohio. So we share a home state. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're in particular from Cleveland. So did you find like growing up in the Midwest influenced or hindered your desire to write in any way? Um, I know it's from the area we're from is very um, working class, blue collar, and sometimes arts aren't taken as seriously. So did you ever run up to something where you felt like your desire to write wasn't something that people thought you should um, invest your energy and time in? Um, I have been told, and, and particularly like right out of college, people were saying, you're really good. You got to get out of Cleveland. You got to get out of Ohio. Like you're not going to, you'll be known as an Ohio poet if you stay here. Um, and I, I was like, what? You know, I just thought people were just dogging on, you know, Cleveland and things like that. But I find that when I've gone to workshops, and this might be true for you too, that I rarely meet other people from Ohio. Like um, I'm in Cave Canem, you know, I was in Cave Canem. I don't remember meeting anybody or like knowing anybody from Ohio. Well, there's two people, Terry Cross Davis, who did a, a blurb for my book, but she's in Baltimore now. But you know, you hear these collectives that come out of DC or other places and you just don't hear that. I remember talking to um, an elder, um, Eugene Redman, the great Eugene Redman. And he was like, what, you're from Ohio? You're from Cleveland? And he said, you know, I remember meeting different people from Cleveland back in the day. He said, but they didn't travel well. They didn't anthologize well. And so, um, 
I often, when I see Ohio writers like you and others, I'm like extra proud and I'm extra cheering them on. Um, because I just think, as you said, I don't think Ohio and Cleveland gets the recognition, but it is a great literary city. And growing up, I often, I always heard about, you know, Toni Morrison being from Ohio, um, Rita Dove being from Akron, Ohio. And so Langston Hughes's time in Ohio. So and his connection with Caramel House. So I, I felt like it was possible, you know, because these were great names attached to the place where I was from. But I also felt like um, I wanted to see what else was out there. And so um, I do think there is something to be said about leaving home and um, being able to be successful and to make it outside of home. I, I mean, there's a lot of people, and maybe this is true for you too, that are still like at home and they've never left. They've never lived anywhere else. And I do feel like it stretches me and, and, and informs my writing. It's the same thing for me. Like I've known people who've lived in this, the same place their entire lives. And it's not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but it can be very difficult to get your foot in the door from places that aren't seen. Um, and I think that Northeast Ohio has this, bounty of amazing writers, but you never really get to see them because people don't have any kind of spotlight on that particular area. Um, so I have a couple of more. I will say that I think it is changing somewhat with the Annisville Book Awards mm-hmm. and the Cleveland Foundation and Lit Cleveland. Um, you know, they're doing some great things there as well. So, um, but as my work with poets and writers has shown me, there are certain cities that are just hubs for literary mm-hmm. writing and for like literary tours. And so um, that that is also, there's the, the there's the writing and then there's the whole publishing world. And, and that's a different animal. You know, after you've completed a manuscript, then you've got to do the work or the business work. And so sometimes I think people just feel like they've finished the, you know, they've crossed the finish line because they have the book done. But that's just, that's just, the beginning of the work that has to be done. And I guess if there's anything that may hopefully come out of this current situation, that the more and more virtual events that there are, people have the opportunity to sit in in events in cities that were off limits or off the book tour type schedule. And hopefully that'll give people more opportunity to be seen and heard. So I have a couple more questions for you. Um, one of them is in direct relation to Ohio. Um, my favorite poem in the book was Migration, My Family, My Cleveland. I read it aloud. I read it silently. I made crazy notes on it. And it made me like, like I've always been proud to be from Ohio. And it made me think like, this is an accurate representation of what it's like to grow up there and the history that belongs there. And I wonder in relation to what we were just talking about, if those poems that are directly related to neighborhoods in the state of Ohio, in particular um, places within those worlds, is this your way of being able to catalog and honor and respect people who may not have the voice to get these things out into the world? You know, I think so. I, I think it's, 
a responsibility. I see it as a responsibility to um, always stay connected to home and to try to bring home with me wherever I am. You know, I I'm really blessed to have really two homes. You know, I'm in New Orleans now, and you know, I I kind of feel like I did a reverse migration because. I have a lot of family in the South. And so moving South really piqued my interest into what life was like for my family in the South and really helped me ponder some of the reasons why they went, some of my family went North, my, my grandparents in particular from Alabama. Um, and so um, I want to show that you know there are some ta- there's some talent that's coming out of out of Ohio and from Cleveland. Most people do not believe I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Like they're like, what? You know, they just don't believe it. Um, <laughs> and it's just interesting, you know, to see. Um, but but yeah, um, that poem really was probably one of the more difficult ones to write in the book because I didn't want to disrespect the choices and the work that my family had had done to try to make a better life for themselves. But I also feel like I'm the first generation to really be able to have the ability to quantify and really take inventory of the impact of migration on my family. You know, um, I, you know, the news just came out that Cleveland has now surpassed Detroit as the poorest city. And so it's kind of like, huh, you know, my folks went north to and picked Cleveland, you know, for automobile jobs, my grandfather, all those things. And this was supposed to be such a better life and such, you know, um, more the land of more opportunity, you know, less racism, all those things. And that has that was not the case now that I've talked to other family members and heard stories. That was not the case. And I wonder, and I always wonder if, you know, they ever thought about going back but maybe they just felt stuck. And so that's kind of the the caveat. That's that's kind of really what I was thinking about with that poem. Um, and I think Midwestern Black writers are really positioned, you know, um, no pun intended with the middle, the, being in the middle of the country to kind of look both ways at um, Black life in America. So um, my last question Sure. In relation to your poem, What Separates Us. And there is a line in it that reads, I want to slice a slither of goodness. And it struck me that that particular line is asking not for an entire piece of anything, but it's asking instead for the smallest bit of something in order to build like your own creation. And so when readers finish your book, either reading it on the page or listening to it um, via the audio component, like what do you want to leave them with when they close the final page? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I I feel like that we've, you know, we, and I say the collective we of, of Black folks and, you know, just people, people in general have been on this pursuit of freedom, you know, um, and we all have our own different definitions or goals of freedom, you know, and um, it's kind of like somebody was asking me how I felt about 
the recent passing of Ruth Ginsburg. And, and I said, um, well, you know, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't going to save us anyway, you know, um, that she did what she was supposed to do, but she wasn't going to save us anyway. And that, you know, this notion of we, the people is, you know, we, we gloss over it, you know, sometimes, but it is really a powerful, a powerful mantra that we, the people, um, can find our own freedom. We, the people can, um, be free, you know, it, that, that freedom knows who we are. We don't have to go asking for it. We don't have to, you know, like, um, we are on the cusp of being free and we don't know it, you know? And, and when we wake up, I was reading about Barbados deciding that they were going to remove um, the queen as like the prime minister or whatever of Barbados. And like one day they just decided she didn't have to be in charge of us anymore, you know? And <laughs> when we have that kind of attitude that, you know, we, the people can change, we, the people can carve out our own freedom, whatever it is that we want, you know, because what's freedom for me may not be freedom for you, you know, even in the talks of reparations, when you, you know, what I would do with reparation monies and what you would do with reparation monies might be different. But the sentiment of being free to do and live the way that we want without um, injustice, without oppression, that is closer to us than we think it is. Um, and so freedom knows my name, it knows your name. And um, once we once we really get that, that we the people um, have the power, um, we'll be free. And so I hope that people feel like, yeah, that um, this book is not a manual for freedom, but it is a notion, it is a, a meditation, an offering that um, there are different types of ways to be free. And that's what I hope people get from, from this book. Thank you so much for tonight. Um, Thank you. You already know that I'm a fan and I hope that other people listen to this and run out to get the book, the audio, whatever they need to get their dose of you um, <laughs> because they will be doing themselves a service. I am Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network.